This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment is five ways to make your debt problem worse. So this is the list of all the things not to do. Yeah, this is how not to solve your financial (laughs) problems. So as attractive as some of these things might sound, these are the things when people call me and I explain the facts, they say, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. I'm like, yeah, if you had known, maybe you wouldn't have wanted to do that. Yeah. And the surprising thing about this segment and the items in this segment is that you at first blush, you'd go, oh, that sounds like a good idea. That's right. Like, why wouldn't I do that? Exactly. Sometimes, you know, common sense kicks in and it just, oh, of course, you know, I want to preserve my assets, but you don't realize there's some laws, some regulations, some things that can really make it more of a headache than what you think you're getting a benefit from doing. So the number one, transferring assets. Sounds like a good idea, Blair. Well, let's let's think about this. So yeah, I have people calling me often. They say, you know, I've got a bunch of these debts and then I've got an asset. And, you know, let's say it's, you know, some savings or it's a piece of real estate or something like that. And they're saying, well, can't I just transfer that to my brother, my sister, my spouse, my kids, and, you know, then go bankrupt on, I've got no assets. They can't do anything to me. So we're protecting our assets by transferring Mm -hmm. them. That's right. So it sounds attractive and I can definitely understand, you know, you've seen something and maybe it's been piece of property has been in the family for a long time. It's only in your name, but you feel, you know, morally it's owned by everybody here. Um, but if you're in a situation where you're unable to pay your debts, the last thing you should be doing is transferring assets out of your name. And a couple reasons for yeah, it. Yeah, why? Because it... Yeah, well, first off, um, if you do sell an asset at undervalue, so this means if you're going to transfer an asset out of your name, as long as you get fair market value, nobody's ever going to have an issue with it. So mm. you know, if you've got a vehicle or some savings or a piece of real estate, you know, if you get it appraised, get a realtor evaluation, then you do a private transaction and you take the money and pay the debt, there's no issue. But the challenge is usually people want to transfer an asset out of their name for no money or for nominal consideration. A dollar love and affection, something like that, right? Um, And at the end of the day, you're actually creating a problem for yourself and for the person that you've transferred that asset to. um, Because from your point of view, um, you've now done what's called a fraudulent conveyance. And fraudulent is a bad word, and it doesn't mean you had any fraudulent intent. You know, you didn't have to intend to defraud anybody. But if the effect is that suddenly you were able to pay your debts with this asset, but now you're not able to pay your debts without it, then there's been a harm that's caused the people that you owe money to. They're now not going to get that paid back. So if you end up having to deal with your debts, if your creditors were to sue you to take you to court, for example, they could go and recover any property that you had transferred out to someone else's name. Um, If you were to file for bankruptcy, your trustee would have to do that. They would have to go and basically undo some of these transactions. So it can really cause a problem for you. So the flip side of it is that... You may not realize this, but a lot of your assets are protected. That's right, Elaine. So, you know, in the real estate example that we were talking about, there's an exemption for home equity in the province of BC. For each person that's on title, it's up to $12,000. So if you had a piece of property and maybe there's, you know, $15,000 of equity that's in there, um, if you hold on to that piece of property, if you had to go into bankruptcy, you're not having to give up all of your $15,000 of equity. The government allows you to keep $12,000 free and clear. And at that point, it's a $3,000 
$1,000 difference is what essentially you would have to pay to buy back that piece of property after your exempt value. Okay. So again, I know it it appeals to, to folks because you want to protect things, but you've got to realize that if you're not able to pay your debts without that property, you've got an obligation um, not to transfer assets out of your name um, until you get some really good legal advice. Again, there can be intricate situations. Sometimes assets are held in trust, but for the most part, speak to an expert before you start moving any assets around if it's a situation where you know you're not able to pay your debts. Now, this next one is kind of a no-brainer, but it also is, you know, like a quick fix, right? You feel like Mm -hmm. you're making a quick fix here using credit, using credit to pay that debt. Exactly. Almost everybody that I've seen, they do this for some period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's you get some money off of one card and you pay a minimum payment on another card, or maybe there's a balance transfer and you take advantage of that, and then you live off the other card for a period of time. But all you're doing is you're just cycling through credit on a monthly basis. And the issue with credit is that there's interest costs on top of it. So right. your balances go up, 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 and then eventually there's nobody left to borrow from because you've maxed out on all of your credit cards. And then you turn to payday loans, and eventually there's no payday loans. To, to borrow from as well. So right. it just becomes this vicious cycle that where it leads to is incredible amounts of stress. You moving money around like a, a day trader type of thing, just trying to make sure everything's going to fit on, on a monthly basis. And it generally, it doesn't lead to any, any happy outcome. You're just borrowing more on a monthly basis. And you know this because of all the people that you've helped over the, over the years who have done this kind of thing, thinking that they were doing the right thing, not wanting to... Um, you know, just all the stuff that comes with being in debt, being embarrassed and ashamed and all that stuff. But folks do this and, and it's just a huge pickle as a result. And that's exactly right. Yeah. And oftentimes, again, you know what, what's going on. You can see um, on a long-term basis, hey, I'm not going to be able to do this forever because I'm going to run out of, credit, of room on my credit. So it becomes, you know, even a cause of depression and despondence that, you know, you just don't feel like there's any upside uh, when every month you go further and further into debt. Yeah. So if you find yourself, you're only able to cover your expenses by using credit or you're paying one minimum payment with a credit card advance from another, that's a huge warning sign of something. You're not solving the problem. You're making the problem worse at that point. And that's when you go to you. Ideally, yes. Yeah. So the third one, bringing in more borrowers. Mm-hmm. So getting somebody else to give you a hand. Yeah. So when you co-sign a debt with somebody else, now a lot of folks think, okay, we're just splitting the debt. You know, if it's a thousand dollar debt and you co-sign it, hey, the worst case, I'm on the hook for 500 because you're 50-50 liable. Right. That is not the case. No. Um, so it's what's called joint and several liability, which means if you co-sign that thousand dollar debt, uh, if the person doesn't pay, you're on the hook for the full thousand dollars, not just half of it. Um, so you've really got to be prepared that if you do bring in another borrower, uh, what we often say is you've now just enlarged the problem. You've now made somebody else a factor in your debt situation. Um, And emotionally, that can be very difficult, but also it can really stop you from taking the option that you probably should take because of the impact it's going to have on the other person. And what I mean by that is I meet with a lot of folks who are ready to do a consumer proposal. We're ready for them to pay off, you know, 30 cents on the dollar. Everything's happy. But then we realize, oh my God, one of these debts is co-signed. And then the person can't proceed with the proposal because morally, they feel obligated to keep this co-signer basically whole. They feel like they got to pay the co-signer back. Because if that person does a consumer proposal, I can make sure they've only got the responsibility to pay back the 30 cents on the dollar or whatever, but the bank is going to go to the co-signer and well within their rights to do so to demand 100% of the debt repaid. And that's sort of probably 
the last thing you want is to impact the person who helped you out in the first place. That's it, right? They've done something nice for you. And, you know, when you've got that co-signed debt, you never thought you wouldn't be able to pay it back. But life can intervene and it can remove all of your flexibility to deal with your debts if you know that, again, mom or dad or brother, sister or friend is suddenly going to be on the hook for the debt that you just asked them to co-sign, you know, hoping that you would never have to need that. Now, you often uh, caution me when I use the word never, but Mm -hmm. this is probably an okay place to use that word. You never want to get somebody to co-sign. Yeah, the way I say is, you know, when is it wise to co-sign for somebody else? Almost never. Almost never. You know, I could think, okay, if it's someone, it's their last year of school, um, you know they're going to be employed and they need you to co-sign on a small student line of credit. Okay, you know, maybe you take a little bit of a risk, but you know what you're signing on for. You know that you got to be prepared to pay that back 100 cents on the dollar. Yes. But in most other cases, it seems like a co-signer is sometimes brought in at the 11th hour. You know, the bank's willing to consolidate all of these debts. Oh, just the last thing they need is a co-signer. And it seems like, oh, this is just, you know, dotting the I, crossing the T, where fundamentally this has just changed that whole consolidation and removed all the risk from the bank if they've suddenly got another pocket to dig into. Right. And legally can do that. Exactly. It's not like they're doing anything bad or wrong. Nothing nefarious. They're well within their rights to do so. And you signed on to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ignoring your debt. Number four. Yeah, it's again a lot of these things people will cycle through for a period of time and you know it's human nature sometimes when the pain is just so great that we can bury our head in the sand, we can ignore things, um, you know, hoping that they get better on their own and the challenge with money problems is unfortunately they don't get better, they get worse, right? Because there's interest charges every month. There's often um, you know additional charges for missed payments or delinquency fees and then suddenly they get the collection agents involved and some it can be pretty tough to ignore them. So ignoring the problem is never a good idea. Uh, what you'd want to do um, is make sure you're opening your mail on a regular basis um, because sometimes your creditors will have taken steps to to sue you or to take aggressive collection actions against you. And if you've got no idea about them, you know, talk about getting hit by a truck and, is, and suddenly if your paycheck is going to be, you know, 30% lower than it was the day before because you didn't know that you were actually getting sued by your creditors. Got it. So you got to take a deep breath. Um, you know, sometimes I have clients bring in stacks of unopened mail to their first meeting with us. That's fine. I don't mind. I got a good letter opener. We'll go through it all, and then we'll figure out what the problem is. But even having that stack of unopened mail, that can be just something that sits there and it intimidates you, and it makes you feel bad. And you know, you're not, you know, fulfilling your responsibilities, but you just don't want to see the bad news. So ignoring the problem never a good idea. It often gets worse, and most of the time, you know, I'd say actually all the time, people don't regret coming in to see a trust they regret waiting. They say, why did I suffer for so long? Why did I let things get so bad? So uh, instead of ignoring it, just pick up the phone, give a trustee a call. You'll be happy you did so. Now, the last one is giving up. And I'm sure that you've talked to lots of people who have gone there Mm -hmm. or at least dabbled in that pool of giving up because it's a tough one. Yeah, money problems can be all-consuming. You know, depending on the, the type of person that you are, you know, sometimes most of your identity can be built into, you know, your financial stability or your job, your profession. And it's, if suddenly something happens, you know, you lose a job, you get sick and your financial stability is gone, um, you can really feel hopeless for a period of time. Especially in this kind of society, in this, area, you know, corner of the world, mm-hmm. right? A lot of our stuff is tied up with who we are, what we do, how much money 
money we make, what yeah. we have. Oh, exactly. You know, even from a senior citizen point of view, sometimes a lot of their social life is, you know, going, you know, not to the casino, for example, but going to, you know, to a, a social event or yes. to a club or things like that, where there's might be just a nominal cost. But if you can't do that anymore, well, then there goes your social aspect as well. So I can yeah. be, a, you know, many different generations in life. So, you know, what I would say to folks, anybody listening, is that you're not alone. You know, you've got to realize every year more than 120,000 people in Canada work with a trustee to restructure their debts. Probably people in your life that you care about, that you respect completely, they've probably been through something like this. It's about one in 10 Canadians over the course of their lives is going to have a debt problem. And the less judgment we put on ourselves, you know, the better that we can even help others. Excellent. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to add in this as we kind of wrap up? You know, I think we we talk a lot, Elaine, about how important it is to really get the right advice at the right time. So, um, you know, making the call before you think you need the help is great. You know, even having a friend or family member to make an initial call for you and ask a couple questions is good. Um, I would say if you've got someone in your life that you can see is suffering, um, you know, just try to nudge them along a little bit. You know, people's finances are very private typically, uh, but if someone starts to open up and say, hey, they're having a little bit of trouble, you know, making this payment or that payment, let them know that there is hope. They may have no idea a trustee exists. They may think that, you know, a trustee's job is just to judge them and make them feel bad. Well, the opposite is true. We're here to help. Yeah. And the, and the staff at Sands and Associates, I mean, you, uh, we hear it when we, when we talk to a number of people uh, about their situations when they get resolved that, you know, they were kind, they were thoughtful, they listened, they helped me get through it. And the end result was terrific. So uh, go to the website if you'd like. It's nice and easy, sands-trustee.com. Lots of Q&A on there. Uh, frequently asked questions or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. Get that first free consultation as well. Find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So from bank loans to consumer proposals in Canada, there's a number of different ways a person can choose to consolidate their debt. And consolidation options can vary a lot before signing on to any debt consolidation program. There's a number of very key questions that you need to ask and they need that need to be evaluated. And it's important to be able to advocate for yourself as well as have, you know, your own sense of awareness of your rights and remedies. So let's talk about debt consolidation because mm-hmm. I know that it, what it means in Canada, or at least how it's advertised in Canada, is different than what we see in the United States when it comes to debt consolidation, right? And, mm-hmm. and the rules around it. Yeah, it, it's one of those terms where it's so attractive, right? Because um, at the end of the day, this is what a lot of people are looking for. Debt consolidation means that you're putting all of your debts together. So rather than having, you know, six or seven payments to juggle, different due dates, different interest rates, so on and so forth, you've got one payment that you're going to make each month. And then ideally, you've got one payment that's going to save you some money. So quite often with debt consolidation, there's either a lower interest rate or sometimes there's no interest depending on the options that you go with. But you really have to be careful. There's a number of questions that you need to ask of yourself, of the provider as well, to make sure that you're actually getting something that's going to solve the problem and making sure that you're aware of all the debt consolidation options that do exist that are out there. Yeah, and not the false information that we sometimes sort of that sticks to us better than the the actual facts. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So five questions. Uh, Number one, who are you working with? 
Yeah. So as anyone would know from listening to our show, there's a number of different um, debt consolidation options and debt consolidation debt consolidation professionals, and they're not all created equal. Um, so consumers need to be aware there's a whole lot of gray areas in the in the arena of debt management. And you know, sometimes I get people calling in and saying, well, you know, why is this even allowed? Why are they allowed to advertise this way? Or why are they allowed to charge these interest rates? Which is a great and, question to be asking, oh, I think. Exactly. And I wish I had better op- better things to tell folks. I'm like, yeah. well, like, all I can say is that there's a severe lack of regulation. Financial products tend to innovate far quicker than the government's ability to regulate them, unfortunately, which you can see with cryptocurrencies and things like that well out ahead of what the government's actually able to manage. Absolutely. And now we're seeing some insolvencies, which unfortunately are, are hitting Canadians pretty hard here. Yeah. Um, so you want to know who you're working with. And, you know, there's there's a number of different avenues you can go through for debt consolidation. And you'd want to understand who's regulating each of these avenues. So first off, the most traditional way to consolidate debt is to approach your bank or your credit union. You know, you're often, you're in good hands. Typically at that point, you're not going to get, you know, um, your information stolen or things like that because banks and credit unions are regulated by the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada and they ensure compliance with consumer protection law. So if something, something happened and it went sideways with a bank or a credit union, you've got some recourse course there. So you don't need to have so many concerns. Um, if you're dealing with a debt repayment agent or a debt pooler, um, that's a term you might not be as, as familiar with, but yeah. they often brand themselves as credit counselors, which we'll talk about in a second here. Okay. Uh, but they're overseen by the Consumer Protection Act of BC. So since about 2016, there's been some regulation there. All right. So it could be a bank, it could be a debt pooler. Um, another is a credit counselor. Now, this is where I think there's there's huge amounts of lack of, or as huge lack of regulation mm-hmm. um, because there's no requirement on who is or who isn't a credit counselor. Anybody could start up a business tomorrow and say, hey, we're going to provide credit counseling services and there's nobody to tell them that they can't do that. Okay. Where they do get regulated is if they start to put debts together and consolidate them in a debt pooler, but there's no regulation as a credit counselor. So if you get poor service from a credit counseling agency, you've got to hope the agency is going to deal with you fairly because there's really nowhere you can go beyond there to get your, to get your problem solved. So it's Sounds like to avoid that altogether, credit counseling altogether, or credit counselor altogether? I mean, well, I'd say have your eyes open. So okay. just, just be aware that if everything goes according to plan, you're fine. But if things don't go according to plan, you don't really have much recourse. So okay. be careful, do your research, know exactly who you're dealing with. And some credit counselors have been around you know, for 20, 30 years. They're very reputable. If someone's just popped up in the last few months, I would think long and hard before I would, I would agree that they would have the ability to solve my problem. And you guys, a licensed insolvency trustee, now this is the biggest difference and Mm -hmm. something that I learned very soon when we first started doing this show was you guys are completely regulated. That's right. Federal law governs you and what you can do. Yeah, I'm overseen by Industry Canada. The Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy is one of the key bureaus within that ministry. Um, And every trustee in Canada, there's less than a thousand of us. We are heavily regulated. All of my trust accounts are audited regularly. My practice is reviewed, if not every year, every two years with a very detailed report of any any things that we need to deal with. So if you're dealing with a trustee, um, you're generally in good hands because the government's backing it. If something goes wrong, you've got a regulator you could we could basically correspond with and they would have the power to pull a trustee's license if there was something done untoward. So it's something we're very protective about because it's our ability to keep the business going. Yeah, and the other piece for me uh, about, about a licensed insolvency trustee is that because you're so highly regulated that you're able to do things that no 
nobody else is mm-hmm. able to do. Negotiate terms of uh, either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal that nobody else can even touch. Exactly. And that yeah. kind of leads us into our second question here, Elaine, uh, which is, you know, you want to know who you're working with, but secondarily, what debts are being consolidated? Because as a trustee, we've got the power to consolidate just about every debt. So it could be government debt, it could be income taxes, it could be GST, it could be student loans, it could be a leased vehicle, for example, where you want to return the vehicle, but there's going to be some damages there at the end. Those items typically can only be dealt with with a trustee. The government's not going to work with a credit counselor or anybody else like that. Um, Sure, if a bank wants to pay off your tax debt for you as part of a consolidation, the government will take that money, but a government will not work with an agent other than a licensed insolvency trustee. So the next question is, how much is that going to cost? Because that's a big question for folks that are Mm -hmm. already struggling financially. Yeah, and that's the objective of debt consolidation is that you're going to actually save some money on a monthly basis. So instead of paying all these payments, separately and high charges and all that, the idea is that when you consolidate, it's going to be at a lower cost. Mm-hmm. So typically, if someone's got credit card interest rate of, you know, 19, 20, 25% or something, uh, if they're able to get a consolidation loan through a bank, which can be difficult to do, they probably cut the, the interest rate in half. So, you know, you might be getting 10, 12%, something like that. So you'd want to make sure you can include that into your budget each month. Um, but you'd also want to understand, you know, are there other costs on top of that? Is there any administration or registration charges? Uh, what happens if you have to miss a payment or uh, postpone a payment or things like that. There can be a bunch of additional costs you'd want to look really closely at and see what you're paying to get this consolidation. And if I was to go to a licensed insolvency trustee to look after this, Do you explain that payments? Well, it's pretty straightforward. We figure out what can you afford to repay on your debts based on your budget, and there's no cost to you to use the trustee. So if we've determined that out of your $20,000 debt, you can afford to repay six or 7000 the trustee gets paid out of that repayment amount, and the rest goes to your creditors. So it's a much different um, avenue than having to pay back all of the debt plus some additional charges on top. Good. So what else is in the fine print? I like that you included that as one of your questions. Yeah, something you really want to be careful about, especially if you're consolidating through a bank, is are they asking you to pledge any security, meaning any assets that you have, because then you're giving the bank the right to seize those assets if you don't pay off the consolidation? Or even more importantly, do they want somebody else to sign on the dotted line? Do they want a co-signer? And we talk about co-signers a lot, and it's almost never a good idea to have somebody co-sign your debts, um, because it's not splitting the debt 50-50, you've just now made somebody else 100% responsible for your debts. And if things don't go according to plan, you've now enlarged your problem and given yourself a pretty tough emotional road to hoe. Um, you know, if you've got a cosigner, are they going to come after the cosigner, for example? Uh, would you lose an asset if you've pledged that? Um, you know, if it was a consumer proposal, what happens if you can't consider continue the proposal is essentially you're back to where you started. The debts come back, the creditors have their rights again, but nobody's showing up at your door, seizing your assets. Um, you just try something that didn't work. If any of this is resonating with you and you want to take some action, go see Blair and the staff at Sands and Associates. Uh, they've got also got a great website with lots of questions and answers on it. Sands-trustee.com is the website there. The phone number to get a free consultation, 1-800-661-3030 and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. 
with us a very special guest. I was quite excited about meeting Dean. Dean Gurney, he's the president of Sands & Associates, has over 30 years of experience practicing in the areas of personal and corporate insolvency and restructuring. Uh, he's got skills, deep experience, and of course, meeting with clients, that's incredibly valuable. Recognizing the stress and confusion that those facing financial difficulty often feel. And I, I know, Dean, that uh, Blair and I often talk about the real impact that it has on folks when they're just taking that step into your door to sit down and talk about the the particular situation, financial situation they're in and and needing some help. And and, uh, I just think from everything I've heard, you guys do such a good job when it comes to this. Well, we try and do our best for the whole our clientele, and and hopefully they leave successful with a new venture and a new look in life. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's pretty true. I think that's pretty true. Um, so this segment, uh, we're talking about the history of insolvency in Canada. Now that may sound a little dry for some, but I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, just a little bit that you told us before we got started here. Um, it's a fascinating history. I mean, I look mm-hmm. at debt, the history of debt, the whole concept over hundreds of years and it's you know it used to be something that we'd go to debtors prison for that's so right. we've we've come a long way yeah and that's very true you know the the ironic thing about uh, debtors prison is, is that you'd go to debtor, debtors prison serve your time and come out and you still owe the money still <laughs> is, is owe right? the money <laughs> so oh, man. Uh, yeah so oh, it, it was what you, this is what you call an unsuccessful uh, regime here <laughs> that's but anyway right. But uh, but you know over a, over a period of time, uh, of course, it's all English law, of course, and we descended yeah. from that, and and that's where uh, confederation started from is English law, and and when we made up our constitution, bankruptcy law fell under the federal federal uh, system, and uh, we uh, started off with uh, bankruptcy law, and of course. Nobody likes bankruptcy law because you're eliminating debt and everybody should pay back their debt. And mm. so there is great turmoil in what to do here. Well, it's a per- such a personal thing, right? You feel obligated and, and uh, just the need, oh, I need to make this right. Yeah, and that and that even today, that's exactly today. what people are doing. Even though we have the advancement of credit and the amount of credit we have, people still want to pay off their debt. We see that mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, and we obviously we we have to work with people, and we have to con- well, I won't say convince them. We have to kind of work with them to see the best option for them and make them uh, so that they can uh, come out of there successful. Yeah, the benefit of taking it on and figuring it out, and then yeah. getting it done. But yeah, there was a there was a period of time when. Uh, there was no bankruptcy law in Canada, uh, so we that uh, uh, and uh, in the eight, from 1880 to about 1919, there was no bankruptcy law, mainly because wow. we were kind of a rural uh, jurisdiction, and mm-hmm. and of course you went to your family store, you paid your bill, or you didn't mm-hmm. get anything. So you know, so what, there wasn't really need for bankruptcy law at that time, uh, and so uh, but you know, uh, with the advent of uh, industrialization and uh, railways and uh, Manufacturing and so on, a real need came. And uh, uh, there was a couple of re- major recessions in the world during that period of time, one being the Klondike Gold Rush, which there's British Columbia with basically <laughs> the gold Klondike Gold Rush, yeah. uh, of which we became uh, part uh, part. That's where most of our population came from, Americans at that time, obviously. But then, uh, then there was the First World War, which there was a major recession just prior to the uh, World War One, which 
a lot of the people that lost a lot of money in that period of time, they ended up signing up and going off to war. You know, that's one way of eliminating your debt. <laughs> right. Anyway, what else to do? Yeah. Well, that's right because there was no there was no law to uh, to basically to to distribute your assets or to eliminate your debt. Mm-hmm. Well, and when the when the soldiers came back uh, from that, that's when we ended up with a new bankruptcy act in 1919. Interesting. Because that's what I find so interesting too, as we talk about you know the bankruptcy system here a lot. And it's such an integral part of a well-functioning economy is having a system where you can deal with failed business ventures, where it's not a life sentence. If you can't pay somebody back, you can actually restructure. So knowing there was that period of time, 1880 to 1919, where there wasn't that opportunity, um, you know, the economy couldn't advance, I think, at that point. Well, and as you might expect, there was pandemonium when it came to a, a, came to a liquidation because uh, the provinces started introducing their own laws at that oh. point in time and there were some provinces that had none there were some provinces that had a little and there were some problems provinces that did uh, more mm-hmm. so it was like a pandemonium across the country and it was basically a free-for-all of who could get the assets first uh, was the guy that was going to be successful but the, hmm. the real point was there was no elimination of debt which is really fundamental to bankruptcy uh, or insolvency law Hmm. So what happened then? So it was, you know, you said 1919. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, roaring 20s and then pre-Great Depression and being a trustee myself. So my understanding is bankruptcy and insolvency it came about around that depression time. Am I correct on that? Well, and that was the, that was the next thing that came uh, came about is that when the depression hit, uh, the, the major thing in Canada was railways, okay? Mm-hmm. And railways were having a huge problem, which led to a new piece of legislation called the Creditors, uh, the Company Creditors Arrangement Acts. CCAA for uh, uh, the scenario on it, and um, and that's basically what that why that piece of legislation and it still exists today. We still use that piece of legislation today to reorganize major corporations hmm. on the same way they did in nineteen thirty. Hmm. Uh, so targeted at railroads, but yeah, now any big restructuring in Canada is under that CCAA legislation. I think people read about you know the Air Canadas of the world or things like that. They all restructure under that same law. Exactly, and and, and, it, and it continues on. So you know, a lot of this stuff is is um, is kind of what we have from um, history here, and and then there was a major readjustment of all the of the act in 1949 was basically, and that's the, that fundamentally that's the act that we still use today. Hmm. And there are some weird things from 1949 that we have even today, which is through the legislation, and uh, it still exists today. But it really, it's really kind of uh, un- not applicable. Hmm. You know, like a good example is that you have to have a thousand dollars worth of debt to go into bankruptcy. Yeah. Okay, well, think about a thousand dollars in 1949. Right. That was basically almost the half a price of a car. Yes. <laughs> Give or take a bit, right? So, if we had a half a price of an average car today, say twenty-two thousand, maybe would that be mm. kind of a car? So, it should be about eleven thousand dollars for people to right. go into debt or somewhere around that. Yeah, point, right. Of course, it's only a thousand dollars. That's so interesting, mm. hey? So, so the access used to be a, some ways. used to be a really high bar. If you think about it, this was for the really big things that went wrong. Here's your restructuring. Now, you know, people can owe a thousand dollars on a credit card bill. They know that they're going to clear. So I get that question a lot. You know, what do you have to owe to be into bankruptcy? I'm like, well, it's an old law, and if you owe more than a thousand dollars, you could do it. Do we have anybody filing for a thousand dollars today? No, but um, you do have people filing sometimes for ten thousand or five thousand or something. You know, something that's still really important to them. 
but comparatively a lot less than back in you know 1949. That's interesting. Any other sort of archaic parts of the law that you that you see or that you're aware of? Uh, there's lots of them, but we won't sure. spend, we won't waste our time <laughs> on that. But there is another one that's kind of interesting. Yeah, tell me. One is uh, one is as you might expect uh, in 1949, uh, uh, gambling was not something that was uh, uh, looked upon favorably in 1949. So they put a specific section in in the act, basically that if you your debt is a result of gambling, then it's is you the trustee has to oppose the discharge, and a judge has to adjudicate upon it. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. But if you look at uh, because alcohol was quite a, quite uh, quite acceptable at that particular point in time, there's the act is completely silent on alcohol or anything related to that. Hmm. So if gambling's an addiction, that's the one that they chose. But alcohol or drugs or other addictions. They didn't get in there. Silent. Hmm. Interesting. So, and we have, and that, you know, what would, this is a businessman's act, and we really try and work with the act and make it work so that it, so that it, it works for people, and we have to we have to work around these old uh, legislation in order to make this thing work. Because, hmm. yeah, even there was no credit cards. If you think about it back then, Dean, what do we see? Everybody's got the credit card, the payday loan, so we're using old legislation. But I think it's aged okay. It's still dealing with modern debt, but they had no contemplation of that at that time, right? Well, absolutely. And, that, you know, you've got to remember, banks were open from 10 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. And if you <laughs> didn't make hours. it to the bank <laughs> and you didn't get your money out, that was it. You just yeah. had no money. Uh, and, you know, the, it was good that they had little corner stores that were able to give you credit, but that was about, uh, that was about the extent of credit at that particular point in time. Yeah, we've so, come a long way. Oh, absolutely in that. So mm. from there, from 1949, basically there was absolutely no amendments until <laughs> 1992. Wow. So nothing <laughs> happened. Even, you know, there's been a couple of recessions during there. And there was a bankruptcy act at one time that was going to, that was in the Senate. Unfortunately, it failed because oh. they called an election. So it died mm. on the order paper. But that, that's basically it. We haven't had anything since 1992 when they brought in consumer proposals, which was uh, which uh, you've talked a lot about on oh, this yeah. program. So that's basically when that came in, and okay. and uh, the the ability to do counseling, and uh, and then of course uh, Revenue Canada became an unsecured creditor. They were a preferred creditor at that point, before prior to that, because then they became an unsecured creditor, which was a huge uh, redevelopment of the act in that with regards to that. So what's the difference there, Dean? If if Revenue Canada was a preferred creditor as opposed to unsecured, because we give people hope all the time. We can deal with tax debt. So what was it before 92 then? Well, they were a preferred credit, meaning if there was any distribution, Revenue Canada had to be paid out first. Oh, they got everything. They got <laughs> everything. Basically, that's what happened. Uh, yeah. you know, unless it was a small debt, they got everything, and then the creditors got whatever was left over. Right. So put the government ahead of everybody else, mm-hmm. and now they're on par with right. everybody else, which so seems e- more free, evenly more fair. distributed yeah. between yeah. everyone. Yeah, and, nine, and that, that was a big movement at that time, was to basically get that uh, paired off. There was also amendments in 1997 that brought in um, uh, child support. Uh, they became a preferred creditor. And uh, in 2009, that b- b- brought in WEPA, which is the wage uh, program that basically allowed people to claim uh, wages uh, as a priority creditor there. So that's what kind of what drove those, uh, those amendments through Parliament. But since 2009, we haven't seen a word and there's no word on the horizon if there's any amendments coming. And they're dearly needed. Well, and and I guess it's it's the will of the federal government of the day, right, as to what they think is important and what they 
aren't interested in addressing? Oh, absolutely. This is all politically it's motivated. Political. You know, no politician yeah. wants to do deal with bankruptcy law because there's no winners. It's not sexy. It's yeah. not sexy. Oh, there's no winners. You know, like if you're dealing with bankruptcy act, you're dealing with people screaming at you all the time, and a right. politician <laughs> doesn't want that at any time. So, yeah, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. So interesting. <laughs> We've been talking with Dean Gurney, who's president of Sands and Associates, uh, over 30 years of experience practicing in the areas of personal and corporate insolvency. Um, so here's the thing: if you've been listening and and you're and you hear you're hearing little things that you feel like, oh, gee, I should take a look at that for me, or that doesn't that that might relate to my situation. These uh, this is what you need to do. First of all, go to the website for Sands and Associates at sands-trustee.com. They have a wonderful large section of frequently asked questions. So they've got questions and answers, giving you just a lot of information to know if the next step should be for you to give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. They'll give you a free consultation, first free meeting, so you can sit down and say, look, this is my situation. I don't know what to do. What do you think? As well, to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this is interesting, Blair. New data says that we are not being very good or prompt as maybe or as prompt as we have been mm-hmm. in paying our credit card debt. Mm-hmm. And there's who is who's collecting this data? The folks that know Equifax. The Equifax. Credit, yeah, the credit rating agency. Interesting. So 2017, yeah. what did they say? So it was approximately 59% of Canadians in 2017 they paid off their credit credit card balances in full each month, which is the best practice, right? Carrying a balance on a credit card usually means there's something wrong, and it was good to see. Okay, 59% of Canadians they were paying everything off every month. That's huge. That's almost 60%, and that, uh-huh. that's awesome. Yeah. But in the past year, that number has declined. So now it's down to 56%. So, you know, not huge change on a percentage basis, but if you think about it, that's a lot of people. That's tens of, people. of thousands of Canadians who used to be able to pay it off every month who aren't. And, you know, that's getting closer to 50-50 where people are carrying balances as opposed to paying it off. Um, and the fact that consumer debt just continues to increase. So uh, consumer debt, excluding mortgages, went up by 5.2% in Vancouver last year, which was the highest amongst all Canadian cities. Canadian cities. And I want to point out, you said excluding mortgages. That's right. So this is for stuff? This is credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, everything other than a mortgage and a car loan, because sometimes okay, car people loans think... aren't included in that's that right. either. Okay. Sometimes people think, you know, well, in Vancouver, it's all the mortgage debt because the houses are worth sure, so much and all that's that. that's what but I no, thought. This excludes that. It excludes still, that. In Vancouver, it's a very expensive place to live. Any of our listeners are probably nodding their head and saying, yeah, what I have to pay, you know, for rent, for hydro, for um, meals, food, everything like that, Fuel it goes for up. for my car. Exactly. Yeah. Most expensive in Canada. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so then we go to well what 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 do I pay or what can I afford to pay when I've got when I am paying my credit card back mm-hmm. and we've talked about this before but boy oh boy it's so worth repeating that minimum de- a minimum payment number on the statement mm-hmm. is 
it just shouldn't be there. Should, they shouldn't be allowed to print that number. Yeah, if, if you're giving yourself solace or getting solace from someone else to say, as long as you're paying the minimum, you're doing just fine. No, no, no you're no. not. <laughs> paying the minimum is a recipe for you being in debt for many, many years. Um, so how do minimum payments work? Let's spend a minute talking about that today, sure. Elaine. So um, the amount of your required minimum payment, it's actually calculated differently depending on the lender and sometimes even between different products and cards at the same bank. Um, your credit score and your credit history can actually influence the interest rates and the credit cards that you're offered that might have different minimum payments. Didn't know that. So for the most part, minimum payments each month, they're somewhere between one to two and a half percent of the total account balance, which again, that's a wide variation there. It is. But also that might barely cover the interest charges that are accumulating. Um, I did some deep research on one large Canadian bank who shall remain nameless, but anybody who wants to look it up, they, they could see how, how minimum payments are calculated at each bank. Um, and the way that they do theirs is that $10 of the amount of the minimum payment that you make actually reduces the debt. The balance of it goes to pay the interest charges, the fees, the cost of it on the card. So if you're paying a $200 minimum payment, $190 of that is gone. $10 of it actually reduces the debt. Wow. And that's at one major Canadian bank. Wow. That's... That's disturbing almost. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I'd almost use the word disgusting. That's, yeah. that's crazy, right? Yeah, fair enough. Um, and when you see people and they bring in their credit card statements to me, um, you know, I've got some examples here. Um, a $1,000 balance on a credit card at 18% interest can take more than 10 years to pay off. If you're only paying the minimum only payment. Only paying the minimums. And you could think $1,000, that could be gone, you know, overspending just a, a few months, right? Yes. A, a weekend or a vacation where you spent a little bit and you thought you could clear it. Okay, we'll pay that off over time. 10 years later, you could still be paying off that thousand dollars. So that's just a thousand dollars. What about six thousand dollars? Six thousand dollars if it was on a store credit card, you know, those ones are about the twenty nine point nine interest rates. 53 years. It's crazy. 53 years, Elaine. And you can imagine you will have paid that debt over multiple, multiple times. The the store company is going to love you because of all the interest you paid them. Now, to their credit, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, credit card companies have to state that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's not in a consistent place across um, every company or every card, but if you look hard, you'll find it on your statement. It's had to be there. So, you know, about the last seven, eight years now, uh, it will say if you only make the minimum payments, here's how many years and months it will take you to get out of debt. That's a very sobering thing to look at. And I love it when clients call me saying, hey, I I looked at my credit card statement. I I saw what you were saying. And now I realize what I'm doing is not getting me ahead. It's just making the bank's money. It's preserving good credit. And that's a whole other segment here. You can preserve great credit just by making your minimum payments, but 53 years to pay off $6,000, preserving great credit is not worth that. Now, do you want to talk about the disclosure rules for credit card companies? Because it's just a, a little small uh, sentence here. Oh, that's but, just what we were mentioning about. Okay. Yeah, just All that, right. so that there's disclosure. No, just that specific thing, because I was mm-hmm. thinking, okay, is there something new here I need to pay attention to? Yeah, no, it's been around for a while no, now. No, that was a pretty big shift. And since then, you know, all the information is there for consumers. But again, it's not in the big bold. You know, what they're going to say is this is all you need to pay just to keep this thing going. Exactly. And that's usually what people are going to pay. So have you got some tips for folks using credit cards? Because one, we know they're incredibly uh, available to us, new ones, old ones, regardless. 
Mm-hmm. Have you got some tips? Yeah, a couple things. Um, you know, first off, if you can't pay the balance in full right away, obviously think twice before using the credit card. So understand, um, you know, your debt isn't what you're worth. It's, it's what you owe. It's actually working mm-hmm. against you. So when you put something on the card, unless you can pay it off, um, you're really impacting your net worth negatively. But a couple things that I can see people get misdirected at um, is rewards programs. So a lot of these great cards that are out there, they might be the platinum this or the travel that, you know, they might have what seems like a very good rewards program. And that might encourage you to charge a bit more than you normally would because, my God, I'm going to get some free flights out of this or free hotel rooms or things like that. But you've really got to look at the numbers. And I've done that. Um, Rewards programs are normally about 1% of what you spend. So if you spend $100 on the card, the value, so to speak, of those rewards that you're going to get back is about 1% to about a dollar back. If you spent that $100 on the card and you don't pay it off, you know, over the course of a year, you're going to pay about $24 in interest. So you got a $1 benefit and you paid $24 in cost for it over a year. That doesn't make any sense. Even in the space of a month, that $1 benefit, if you don't pay it off, the interest rate, again, on that $100 is about $2.40. So you're doubling the cost to get a reward. And again, all we see is the reward. We don't always see the cost, but be very, very careful with credit card rewards programs. It's a very easy way to run up your debts thinking that you're getting value, where the value that you're getting is quickly outweighed by the interest that you're paying. Okay. What about cash advances? Cash advances, just say no. Yeah, because <laughs> you know, I get offered that yeah. a lot on various cards. I get a Now, that's when you get the set of checks and well, all that. Well, there's a couple things. Those ones are the balance transfer. So we'll talk about those too. So, okay. And they're not, the, not all they're cracked up to be either. So on cash advances, the two quick things to keep in mind. So first off, the interest on a cash advance can be significantly higher than what you're paying on the cards sometimes as much as 10% higher. And the benefit of a credit card is normally you get those days of grace. You make the purchase, credit card bill comes in a couple weeks, it's due a couple weeks after. You might have, you know, three or four weeks of interest-free money there. When you do a cash advance, from the moment you take out that money, you're paying interest. Okay. So really not great. And when you look at a balance transfer, Lynn, the issue there is there's often a transaction fee. Sometimes it's one or 2% is the transaction fee. So that can get expensive. Um, And then you will have to make sure, you know, the rate is going to save you to offset the transaction fee, but be very careful because there's a lot of things in the fine print about charges. I don't even read the stuff. I just, (laughs) and away they go. Don't touch them. Yeah, I think the last tip is to make your payments on time um, because if you think your interest rate is high now, just wait until you go delinquent because yeah. they've got a special interest rate at that point. And it's kind of funny if you're having trouble paying the debt now, why don't they jack up the interest rate and you'll be even more, have more difficulty to pay it. But that's often what happens. So if you don't make the payments on time, things can get even more expensive. Now, in our last minute or so, uh, let's talk about strategies to pay off the credit card debt. Yeah, let me talk about two ways to do it. So, you know, one is the idea of putting all of your debts on a single sheet of paper, making sure you cover the minimum payments, but then ranking them by highest interest cost first. And you've got to decide how much extra can I devote to my debt repayment each month and whatever extra you can devote beyond the minimum payments, put it against the highest interest rate first. So you want to knock off the one that's most expensive and then work on down the list. Okay. And that's assuming you're able to pay all your debts off in full. If that's not your situation, as any of our listeners would know, speak to a licensed insolvency trustee. We're pros at dealing with credit card debt. We can often reduce that very significantly doing a consumer proposal that does not require you to go into bankruptcy. Now, if you're wanting more information, go to the website sans-trustee.com. There's just a lot of uh, frequently asked questions and great responses on things that you can do now. Or if you want to go see someone, that's easy to do as well. I've got a 1-800 number here. It's 1-800-661-3030 to get that consultation as well as to find an office near you. 
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.